Well, good morning, New Life Church. Great to be here. And a big thanks to those of you who are feeling like it's your time to jump in and just select one of those areas that are currently in need in the ministry. That's not all our serving areas, but that's the ones where we really have need at the moment. It's good to be here. Just quickly look at the people next to you and in front of you and behind you and tell them it's good to see you at church today. I want to ask you a difficult question today. Uh, it's something that you probably don't like to think about. It's something that probably brings up not the best emotions in you. But here's what I want to ask you. Have you ever been a victim of crime? Ever had someone do something illegal against you? Ever, ever had someone steal from you or hurt you or abuse you or defraud you? Well, most likely in a room like this, in a country like this, the answer for most of us would probably be, yes, like that's happened to me. In fact, this week I did something and I was like, ah, oh, I don't know if I should have done that because I went and looked at the crime statistics for South Africa. And, uh, the, you know, the government has a statistics website that you can go and just look at up-to-date stats. And this is what I found out, that on average, about 3,800 homes get broken into every day about 115 cars get stolen about 50 people will be murdered today over 3,000 will experience some kind of theft or loss over 2,300 people will be defrauded today about 370 will experience a carjacking and about 114 will be raped. Those stats are not pretty. And when I started to think about it, I realized, actually, my life's been pretty affected by crime. And I haven't even really realized it because we don't like to think or dwell on these things too much. I mean, I've, had, I've thought back and I was like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had an uncle who spent many years in jail in Australia for a sexual offense. I have a distant family member who right now has been found guilty of fraud and is awaiting sentencing. When I look at my life, I see, hey, we've had things stolen from us. I was hijacked, or not hijacked, but I was mugged at knife point on my December holiday by two guys. Um, my wife has had things stolen, right? Handbags stolen while she's gone shopping. And you know how, what a pain that is, because it's not really about what they take. It's those ID books and, and like driver's licenses and all those kind of things that you have to then redo. I, as a kid, I remember having bicycles stolen from our yard. And now as a parent, I realize so much stuff gets stolen from our yard. We've even had a puppy stolen from our yard. Guys, that was a cute dog. If you took it, bring him back. Like, he was super cute. I know why you took him. He was cute, but he wasn't yours. Uh, my wife and I actually last year, January, were victims of fraud. And we lost some money which I know has happened to many of you. And this church has had many break-ins. We've had people brazenly like walk into our offices and just in the opportunity, they've taken cameras and they've taken money and they've taken computers. Crime is all around us and I've seen firsthand how damaging it is and also how much it affects families. Crime can literally divide families. It can make people feel forced to choose a side to be for or against, 
the victim or the perpetrator. I mean, my uncle died a few months ago. I had to do his funeral. And at his funeral, there were members of my family who were not even allowed to attend the funeral on Zoom because of crime, because of the offense that they still have around those crimes. I've seen firsthand in counseling the absolute devastation that happens when someone gets raped. What happens when someone is sexually abused or molested as a child? What happens when someone's entire pension is defrauded and taken away from them right at the end of their working career and they have no way to make another plan? What happens when people's financial security is taken away? What happens when people's only mode of transport, their one car, is stolen and they don't have the insurance in place to get it replaced? I've seen the devastation of what crime can do to a person who, who experienced murder in their family, that now they don't just have to deal with the grief, they have to deal with the hate on top of the grief. I've seen firsthand the pain and destruction that crime causes people, how people can't even watch action movies anymore because they get triggered the moment they see a gun or a holdup because it reminds them of their time that the gun was pushed in their face. And so in a country like this, with all of us having these stories and these moments that we can think back on, people being defrauded and raped and murdered and abuse happening, when, with all of these things going on, I think it's a very fitting question for us at some point just to stop and ask ourselves a question. As children of God, what is our responsibility to the criminal? For those who have hurt you and taken from you and defrauded you and abused you, like what is your responsibility to those criminals? How should we treat them? Because we're in this series now called Love Like Jesus. So how did Jesus, did he love them? How did Jesus respond to the criminal? How did he treat them? What did he do to those who committed crimes? And we're going to see that scripture is quite clear on exactly how Jesus treated the criminals. In fact, there's this one interaction that I want to point to, and it happens in Luke 23. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. If you've got the New Life Church app, all the notes are there. You can turn with me there. But in Luke 23, we find Jesus, and he's in a very, probably the worst place he's been in. He's on the cross. And what's interesting about the scene on the cross is that Jesus, on either side of him, it tells us that there are criminals being crucified alongside Jesus. And we're going to pick up the story in Luke 23, and let's read it together from verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, look at someone and say they were criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and another on his left. That Greek word in the original language for criminals is this word kakorgos, and it literally means an evil working man, someone whose intention is evil, a really bad guy. So this is someone, these criminals were really bad men. They were of evil intent. And scripture tells us 
They were now on either side of Jesus. And we could probably assume that these men probably were part of Barabbas's gang. Remember Barabbas, the notorious criminal who traded places with Jesus? They were probably with him because it was meant to be Barabbas on their cross in the middle. It was most likely him and his sidekicks. And so now Jesus happens to be between the sidekicks of Barabbas, these criminals, these hardened, lifelong, professional criminals. And it's interesting this interaction that Jesus has with them because we know this entire scene of Jesus being between criminals is not an accident. It's intentional. In fact, it's so intentional that it was prophesied 700 years before the crucifixion in Isaiah 53, that Jesus would be numbered amongst the transgressors. This is one of the mistake prophecies coming to fulfillment. Jesus right there, numbered amongst the criminal. Now why? Why did Jesus need to be put amongst the criminals? Well, it just seems like this was Jesus' way of doing ministry. He was always numbered Amongst the sinners. You know that one of the names they gave to Jesus was a friend of sinners? And they meant this as a mocking term, as a derogatory term. Look at him, a friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. This is how Jesus did ministry. He was born with the animals in a cave and he died with the criminals on a cross. The humility of his ministry. This is who Jesus sought out. Friend of sinners amongst the criminals, and as you start reading the story, you, you start to realize as you go through the Gospels that this account of Jesus being between criminals is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. All of them talk about this incident, but Luke is the one that really breaks it down the most. But as you start to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and get the account of the crucifixion, you start to get a fuller picture the picture becomes very clear of what happens. And the picture that we get is that as Jesus is on the cross, everyone starts to mock him. They laugh at him. They tease him. We read in Matthew and Mark especially that, that the crowd started to tease Jesus and the religious leaders and the elders start to mock him while he's dying. And then Matthew tells us something really interesting in Matthew 27, 44. It says, and in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. That word rebels there is an intentionally plural word, which means both criminals on either side of Jesus now started to mock him. Now, guys, I want to say you've got to be a special kind of low to yourself be crucified and you're in pain. And in this state, at the end of your life, while you're in pain, you sort of mock the guy next to you who's also dying. I mean, that's a special kind of low. That's a special kind of hardness. That's another level of evil, right? To yourself, you're dying. You would think, hey, the three of us are in this together. Shay, man, I feel your pain. I don't know you, but I feel your pain. But instead, the two criminals on either side of Jesus, they're like, they sort of mock him. They sort of tease him while they're dying. Insane. This is how hard they were. This is how lost they were. And then something pretty miraculous happens at this cross. One of the criminals has a change of heart. One of them starts to see Jesus a little differently. So let's read how this happens from Luke 23 verse 39. It says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. Ha! 
So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. The one who was mocking as well, the one who was teasing as well, the one who was jeering as well, he starts to protest and says, don't you fear God when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then Jesus said, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Suddenly, one of these criminals has a moment of clarity where he can see Jesus so clearly for who he is. Suddenly, one of these men almost has a a moment like Saul had on the road to Damascus when he encountered Jesus and was immediately transformed and left his life of crime and murder. This criminal on the cross, the one who was mocking, the one who was jeering, the one who was against Jesus has this change of heart and he sees Jesus for who he really is. He has clarity of mind. Now, how did that happen? What happened to change this criminal, this hardened lifelong criminal from a man of jeering to a man of respect? Well, we don't know exactly what happened, but Luke mentions three incidents that take place while the criminal is present. One of them is that Jesus says these words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, to a criminal, I could imagine just hearing those words must have been like, who does that? Who says that? Jesus might have said those words straight after he mocked him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think that moment of forgiveness must have punched that criminal in the gut, just being like, what? Who does this? Another thing we see in Luke happen is they put a sign above Jesus' head that says, this is the king of the Jews, for the criminal that must have been so confusing and must have made him think, why are they doing that? Maybe he is the king of the Jews. Maybe I can be part of his kingdom. Another thing Luke mentions is that people start shouting, hey, you saved others, now save yourself. And you could imagine this criminal thinking he saved others. Did he really save others? Could he save me? Maybe it was one of those things. Maybe it was a mixture of those. Or maybe it was something Jesus said to him that hasn't been recorded. But what we know is this man, he had a come to Jesus moment. He had a moment where he saw Jesus for who he really was. And how did Jesus respond? Well, I could imagine how most of us would respond to that request. The guy who was just mocking me while I'm dying While I'm bleeding, he's ragging me. He's in the same boat as me. And he's mocking me. Can you imagine how we would have responded if that guy was suddenly nice to you? Be like, okay, come on, dude. Like, honestly, like, give up. Like, I'm not not playing those games. You're right at the end of your life. You're getting the consequences you deserve. You spend most of your life being this hardened criminal You even say you deserve to be on this cross, and I agree with you, you deserve to be there. The things you've done are awful. You deserve this death. You deserve this pain. Really, just keep quiet and and take it like a man. Could imagine some of us responding in that way, but Jesus being Jesus, he shows 
radical, extreme, extravagant love and grace and forgiveness to the very man who was just mocking him while he died. And Jesus says these words to that man. In Luke twenty-two forty-three, and Jesus replied, I assure you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Today, you will be with me. <laughs> this man gets promised instant heaven. And he's done nothing to deserve it. He gets promised, you know, that there's no, there's no other person in all of the Bible who was given such a guarantee, not only of his forgiveness, but of heaven, his access to heaven. No one in all of the Bible is given as much assurance that he is forgiven and will be in heaven than this man. And yet it seems like no one in all of the Bible is least deserving. He's done nothing to deserve it. Jesus didn't say, well, well, let's see if we can get you off and baptized before you die. Then maybe. No baptism. How does that fit in with your theology, by the way? He didn't say, hey, well, let's, give this a, let's see if this transformation is real, if this conversion is real. Let's see how well you do at church and at Bible study. And you've got to do some good things to people. You've got to make some amends. You've got to ask for forgiveness. And you've got to forgive all those people that you've harmed and that you're against. And let's just see how this plays out. No, no, no. He gets instant guarantee for heaven. No person in all of Scripture is given this much assurance. No person in all of Scripture is given this kind of guarantee. And church, this has to be one of the greatest demonstrations of faith and salvation by grace alone and not by works. Salvation by grace alone. Titus 3 verse 5 says, He saved us not because, look at someone and say, not because. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His great mercy. Why are you saved? Not because of the righteous things you have done, but because of His great mercy. Mercy, And so here's the truth that you and I, hopefully today we can start to realize is that Jesus loves the criminal. He loves the criminal. And I don't know who has done what to you. I don't know how extreme it's got. I don't know how bad it's been, but what I know is that Jesus loves him. He loves the criminal. He loves him. And here you have two men who have an equal opportunity to be saved. They're both in Jesus' presence. They're both as close to him. They're both dying the same death. They're both seeing the same things. They're both hearing Jesus speak, but only one responds. And it's such a good reminder that we can be close to Jesus and have proximity. We can have an invitation from Jesus and have opportunity, but that doesn't mean we're guaranteed eternity. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes. You've been close to Jesus. You've had proximity. You've come to church services like this and you've had opportunity, but that doesn't mean you're guaranteed eternity. You still have to make that choice for yourself. You can't get in on someone else's salvation. 
you've still got to choose Jesus for yourself. And one criminal chooses Jesus and the other one doesn't. And maybe you're like, well, I don't deserve it. I've mocked Christianity. I've mocked you weird Christians all my life. It's okay. It is not by works that you're saved. It's by faith, by grace alone, so that no one can boast. So those of you who today have proximity, you're in church and you have opportunity, my hope and prayer is that you would give your life to Jesus. That just like this criminal, you would declare that Jesus is Lord. In fact, I want to have a closer look at at just what Jesus said to this criminal. Let's bring it up again in uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus replied, I assure you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Everyone say, I assure you. The level of assurance Jesus gives, some of your Bibles might might say, very truly, I tell you, or verily, verily. Why did Jesus give him so much assurance? I think it's because it's so hard to believe that this man would get saved. It would be so hard to believe, like, this guy, like, are you sure, Jesus? Like, out of everyone, it's this guy, Jesus, are you sure? Yes. So, surely I tell you, verily, verily, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Given more assurance and guarantee than anyone else in Scripture. You know, there was a a group that was studying Christianity and, and doing a survey on Christians. And so, they asked Christians this question. What does it mean to be a Christian? 10% of the Christians responded with, to be a good person. 11% responded with, it means that you go to church and you're religious. 14% said it means to love and help other people. But let me ask you something. Did the thief on the cross do any of those things? Did this criminal do any of these things, and yet Jesus says, tonight you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. What's that word mean? It's this word in Scripture interchangeably uh, meaning heaven, and it's this Persian word. And this Persian word would refer to a garden of the king. See, these kings in Persia would have these walled-off gardens, these gardens that they watered. And For anyone the king wanted to honor, for anyone that the king wanted to uh, spend time with, to build relationship with, what he would do is he would invite them to his paradise, to his walled-off private garden, and then the king would walk in communion, in community with that individual. And Jesus is saying, today you will be with me in my paradise. And that's not even what that man asked for. All that man said is, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus said, I'm going to do more than remember you. I'm going to walk with you. You see, heaven is not just about us enjoying our little house or home and our mansion and walking on the streets of God. No, it's about walking with Jesus, having intimacy with Jesus, companionship with Jesus. Jesus looks at this man, this criminal who was just mocking him and now at the end of this life has a change of heart. And Jesus says, today, you and I, today, We will walk. Everyone say today. I love that because it really messes with some people's theology because Jesus said, today you'll be with me. We'll be walking together. Not, hey, I'm going to put you on the outskirts of heaven and then we're going to like burn off your sin for a few thousand years and 
as your sin burns off, you're going to get closer and closer to the throne room. No, no, no. Today, Jesus was saying, you know what? This, this blood is enough to wash away all your sin. This blood is enough to redeem you from a life of crime. This blood, this blood, my blood is enough to finish the hold of sin over your life once and for all. You are free today. Today you will be with me in paradise. We will walk in community in my garden. And I know we can listen to that. And we can almost in our hearts, and even maybe if we don't have the guts to vocalize it, we can be like, well, that's not really fair because I've been serving God my whole life. Like we could be like, but God, like I've been here trying and sweating and praying and fasting. And I've been like going to church and reading my Bible and going to those classes and trying to like get more. And God, I've been in, you know, I've been in, I've been working hard. I've been denying myself. I've been picking up my cross. I've been praising you in the storm. God, I've been doing all this stuff, and, and it's like not always a hard and easy road. It's a narrow road, God. Many times I'd love to have just jumped onto that wider road that just seemed easier. But now I've been walking, God, faithfully. I've been running the race with perseverance. We can even quote scripture, right? Been running so hard with, and now like, don't I get a different reward to that guy who on his deathbed with his last breath just gets in? How is that fair? You might have been thinking in your heart just quietly like, that doesn't feel fair. But Jesus actually told a parable about this very thing. And uh, I'm going to read the whole parable to you. I love it. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 20 from verse 1. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal day wages, and then he sent them out to work. That's all of you who, by the way, got saved as a kid or grew up in a Christian household. Right from the beginning of your life, you've been working in the vineyard. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. Now these guys are only getting to work at nine in the morning. Wow, you've already been there for two hours, right? At five o'clock, uh, at noon, and then again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. And then at five o'clock in the afternoon, he was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around, and he asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, because no one has hired us. The landowner told them, well, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, guess what, guys? They each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive much more. But they too were paid a full day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people only worked one hour, and yet you pay them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. And he answered one of them. He said, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? 
Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. And is it against the law for me to do what I want to do with my money? Is it against the law for me to do what I want to do with my gift of salvation? Is it against the law for me to do what I want to do with my guarantee of eternity? Is it against the law? No. Should you be jealous just because I'm kind to others? Oof. That's when I picture Jesus just dropped the mic. And he said, so those who are lost now will be first then. And those who are first will be lost. By the way, that's a verse we like love to quote. I hear it all the time. But it's never in this context. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter when you get in. It just matters that you get in. And whether it's because you happen to be born in a Christian household, which you didn't choose, by the way. Or whether it's right at the end of your life, on your deathbed, if you get in, you get in, and you walk with him in paradise. Because, guys, you didn't earn this. You didn't earn your salvation. You didn't earn it. It's a free gift. And so we all get the same reward at the end of the day. Those who have dedicated their whole lives and those who have lived a terrible life but make a decision for Christ. We get the same reward. Yes, even the serial rapist. Yes, even the serial murderer. Yes, even the greatest of thieves. If they make a decision for Christ, they get in. Max Lucado is a famous preacher and a great, brilliant author And I was so surprised to find this this week. (laughs) He said that one of the greatest struggles he's ever had in his faith is coming to grips with the greatness of God's grace that he would even give it to someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. Ever heard that name? Jeffrey Dahmer, famous uh, murderer in Wisconsin, and he he was evil. Did evil, evil things. He murdered tons of people. He raped some of them. He dismembered some of them. And then he ate some of them. Okay, it doesn't really get worse than Jeffrey Dahmer. But what you might not have known is that Jeffrey Dahmer gave his life to Jesus in prison. He came to the faith. In fact, there's a local Wisconsin minister by the name of Roy Ratcliffe. He was a pastor in Wisconsin, and one day Roy Ratcliffe was called to the prison because he heard one of the prisoners wanted to get baptized, not knowing that prison was Jeffrey Dahmer. So Roy Ratcliffe decided that he would once a week go and spend time with Jeffrey Dahmer, disciple him, and spend time with him and teach him what he could. Because I know it's so, it's so tempting for us to look at a guy like that and say, oh, isn't that convenient? He found a religion. Yeah. Right. What's that got to do with like, how does it help all those people he killed and ate? Right? But Roy Ratcliffe, after spending several months with Jeffrey Dahmer, he was convinced that his conversion was real. And that his belief in Jesus was genuine. And so Max Lucado writes this and he says, I struggle with this idea. 
I know that Jesus is Savior. But that he would save someone that bad, that vicious a criminal. I've now come to rest in the truth that forgiveness for criminals like Dharma is at the very heart of the gospel. Wow. Church, Jesus loves the criminals. And now he loves them through us. We are now that vessel of love. We are now the, the way he will reach them. And so I don't, know, I don't know what people have done to you. I don't know what crime has been committed against you. And I don't know what you have become a victim to. But what I know is that Jesus wants to love those people through you. He wants you to love like him, not love like you, not love like the world, but love like him. In fact, Jesus is saying the way you treat them, it, it matters. Like it has a real effect on my relationship with you. Jesus tells us terrifying, he gives us terrifying illustration of judgment day. And he says, all the people will be before him. And there will be a group of people, he's going to start dividing them. Like a shepherd would divide sheep and goats. And he's going to put a group of people on his right and a group of people on his left. And then he addresses these different groups. And first of all, to the people on his right, can everyone on my right say, hey, you guys have chosen really good seats today, by the way. Matthew 28 from verse 34. Then the king said to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance for the kingdom prepared for you. Since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you guys gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You guys gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And I needed clothes and you clothed me. And I was sick and you looked after me. And I was in prison. I was accused of a crime. I was found guilty. I was sentenced for that crime. And you came to visit me. Then Jesus will look to those on his left. Can the guys on my left say hi? I'm sorry. <laughs> You've chosen a really bad seat today. He says to those on his left from verse 30, 41, then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick. And yes, I was a prisoner. I was a criminal in prison and you did not look after me. And they will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. God wants to love people through you because he aligns himself with the least of those in society. And it's not just the poor. It's not just the underprivileged. It's not just those who don't have clothes or don't have food. Jesus is saying, those who have committed crimes and been punished for those crimes, the criminals, they are, they are the least of these and they need my love. 
They need to know my story. They need to know that I'm for them. They need to know that I forgive them. Guys, I want to say that I have met some of the best Christians, the most on-fire believers I've met them in prison. And I think part of the reason that they're so on fire is that they have to wake up every single day so reminded about their decisions and their consequences. They are they're reminded every day by the things they've done wrong, unlike us, by the way, and we've also done wrong things. But we can very easily wake up and forget about it. We can easily forget about those consequences, forget about the laws that we have broken, but they can't. So they wake up every day just confronted by their faults. What they really need is for someone to tell them that there is still true freedom in Jesus Christ, that they can be forgiven even though society has not forgiven them, that there is a Savior who forgives them even if it's right at the end of their life. They need to be told. For those of you who hire people, I want to encourage you, don't dismiss someone just because they have a criminal record. Don't make that a deciding factor. Not us, not Christians. We love like Jesus loves. In fact, why did you start a department where you only hire criminals? Love like Jesus. Love like Jesus. He, he asks you, he says, whatever you do to them, you do to me. And so those of you who have anger because of that molestation or that rape or that abuse, or that theft, or that fraud, whatever it is, that criminal in your life that has brought so much pain, whatever you do to them, you do to Jesus. Love them. Love them. Because Jesus does. You know, in 2019, there was a video that went viral. I'm sure most of you have seen it, but I want to show it again. It's this woman called Amber Geiger, and she killed a man. She killed a 26-year-old, a man by the name of Bothman Jean. She was found guilty for murder, and she was sentenced to 10 years in jail. But at her sentencing hearing, Bothman's brother got up to the stand, and he started speaking. And what Bothman's brother Brian said shook the world and surprised the world. And this is what he said. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do and the best would be give your life to Christ that's, 
I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. Church, that is loving like Jesus. So I want to ask you today the same question I started with. What crime is being committed against you? Who's hurt you in that way? The invitation is to live above your flesh. Live above the hate. Live above the bitterness. Live above all those things that the devil wants to inject into your life through that circumstance. And instead, love like Jesus. Perry Noble, another pastor, I read this in his blog this week. He said, Jesus never intended for the church to be a group of isolated, self-righteous, angry people. In the past, the church has spent so much time debating with people over social issues that we forget to love people like Jesus told us to. We have to remember that we will reach way more people through conversation than through condemnation. I think if we could love those who have done the most damage to us and the most hurt to us, that's when people will really believe in Jesus Christ. They'll believe in His grace because they would have seen it through you. They'll believe in His love because they would have seen it through you. And Jesus wants you to be that vessel. He wants you to be that example. And He's inviting you today to love the criminal. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you for your children. God, I thank you that you call us to higher things. And God, in our own strength, this feels impossible. It feels so hard, Lord, but I know you want us to do this. And so I believe, Lord, you will give us the strength to do it. You're going to give us the grace to see this through. So Father, I pray for the pain the pain of everyone in this room, of everyone watching and listening right now. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a strength to rise above our flesh, to rise above that anger and that bitterness and that unforgiveness. God, may we be released from that trap of unforgiveness and may we release those who have done those sins against us. Jesus Christ, as you hung on that cross, You looked at the people who had put nails in your hand and whipped your back, put a crown of thorns on your head. You looked at the people who had murdered you innocently and mocked you while you were dying. And you said these words, Father, forgive them for they not know what they're doing. God, I pray we would carry your heart. Help us carry your heart. Help us love the people that we have deemed impossible to love. In fact, church, I believe there's some of you, you know, the first step is just a willingness to want to love. 
And if that is you, I just want you to pray a prayer, a quiet prayer, wherever you are. And you can just pray, being a short, earnest prayer. Say, Jesus, help me love. Jesus, help me love like you. Jesus, help me release us to you. Jesus, use me to show grace. Use me to show mercy. God, you are the mighty one. You are mighty. You are mighty. Fill us with your might. Help us show your power to this earth. Mighty one. Come church and stand and just sing one more time before we